Good morning. I was going to say something about Thanksgiving and crazy uncles, but after singing, your presence is heaven to me. It's, such, it's just as though the psalmist wrote those words. So let's turn to Psalm 42. We're going to read Psalm 42 and 43. They really belong together. I think they were one psalm that became two psalms. All the specialists regard this as really one psalm. But the break between 42 and 43 is appropriate in a way because the tone turns in 43. So let me read it to us. You're familiar, I'm sure, with some of the words. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God or see the face of God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember. And I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. Oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore I remember thee from the land of the Jordan and peaks of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep, calls to deep at the sound of thy waterfalls, all thy breakers and thy waves have rolled over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime. And his song will be with me in the night. A prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why hast thou forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. The help of my countenance and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my case against an ungodly people. Deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. For thou art the God of my strength. Why hast thou rejected me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? O send out thy light and thy truth. Let them lead me. 
Let them bring me to thy holy hill and to thy dwelling places. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and upon the lyre I shall praise thee, O God, my God. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. One bad comment. That's all it takes. I've read studies claiming it takes seven compliments to undo one bad comment. That isn't my experience. I think it... I think it takes a lot more, way more than seven compliments or good comments to offset one bad comment or criticism. If 100 people say, good job, but one person says, you weren't that great, how is it that that one negative comment, one criticism weighs more than 100? Of course, It's not the comments themselves, it's the way we reflect on them, the way we cook and stew them. Not the comment, but the way we view the comment. Well, Thanksgiving is behind us with Christmas ahead of us. And I was thinking about the 100 to 1 ratio. That's a principle almost. And with Christmas ahead, and maybe we experience with Thanksgiving and high holidays, times that are rich in our experience, our childhood. It's not compliments to criticism, but expectations to disappointment. What's the 100? Uh, The way we remember it. It's uh, the way the media pictures it. Like at Thanksgiving, the uh, Norman Rockwell depiction of Thanksgiving, and then sometimes the reality of our own Thanksgiving. And it can certainly be that way with Christmas and with all the advertising and with all of the media presentations, they present an ideal that raises our expectations. The 100 can be the way others enjoy it. When we look at them and they seem to just be experiencing a perfection that we're not. They seem to have it all, or at least that's the way it appears to us. Or the 100 is the way it was when, say, mom and dad were able to be with us, or other members of the family, or friends. And the one? Not so much a criticism, but just the way it is. And too often the way it is seems an inferior version to the way it should be, the way we want it to be. 
and thanksgiving. And I hope you had a great thanksgiving, one that was sweet and meaningful. And thanksgiving and Christmas can remind us that life may not match our expectations or our memories. I'll confess to you that, I almost hate to say this, but there's a little truth in this. Christmas never seems to match my rosy-cheeked memories. There was the year of the angry relative that ruined Christmas. Uh, There was the year of Susie's horrific car accident on Christmas Day. Uh, There was the year that my mother died. And for 40 years, I think of my mother, wish she could be here to see family or to enjoy this experience with us, or for my kids to know my mother. And there's a lot more empty chairs in our lives each and every year. There's the year I became a grown-up. I don't remember exactly when that was, but that kind of ruined Christmas for me. You know, adulthood. Uh, you got to take care of others. You have duties. You have responsibilities. You have expenses. The 101 principle. It can... uh, sometimes cause us to fall into an unfair comparison with an age of innocence or perfection or beauty. I got to tell you, though, that the Lord, not only at Thanksgiving and at Christmas, since the Lord has been the center of my life, has made each and every day a better day one with perspective, that ability to see things from his perspective. Even, you know, the crazy uncles in our lives. And that's at the heart and experience of the psalmist. He's going through a very difficult time. Which of us has not at some time or in some way felt like the psalmist? He feels empty. We see that in verses 2 and 3. He has an inner sense of wilderness. His soul is parched. It's not just that he's overheated like a deer on the run in the hunt searching for water, thirsty because he's being pursued by something. But this is almost a drought. His tears are his only moisture. He feels sad. In verse 3, we see it's a prolonged sadness. Tears have been my food. He's not eating. He's not sleeping. Tears at night. And in verse 8, it's clear that he has fitful sleep. He turns to a song that he wants to compose out of his experience and his knowledge of the Lord, that it might soothe his restless, fitful nights. He's not been eating. He's not been sleeping. 
He's not looked himself. He goes around mourning, as if grieving a death. And in some ways, maybe he feels like he's dying. He's mourning himself. He feels despair, distrust, forsaken, and defeated. In verse 4, he feels clearly isolated from others. He remembers happier, better times, times when he was a part of a throng, a part of a host, a part of the people of God. He even led the way in joy, in festivity, as they went into the house of the Lord. Sweet times are things of the distant past for him now. He feels isolated from God in verse 6. He remembers God. And that's something that isn't just a memory that pops into his mind. He seeks to remember. He calls upon his memory. But he calls upon him as though he's in a distant place from the land of Jordan, the peaks of Hermon and Mount Mizar, far from the mountain of God far from Jerusalem and his temple that he associates so intimately with the very presence of God. He feels beyond hope. He feels forsaken by God. But this is not theoretical. It's it's not the theology of God that he's expressing. It's practical. It expresses his feeling as if, why are you so far from helping me, Lord? What has happened in his life? I wish we knew in a way. No one is quite sure. And perhaps even the psalmist isn't quite sure. Aren't those the most perplexing, puzzling kinds of dryness, darkness, and despair? When we can't quite put our finger on it? We don't know how to shake this heaviness, this darkness. We can't seem to drive those clouds away even though we long for the sun to shine. And maybe it's best that we don't know. Because if we knew, maybe it would seem trivial to us. Maybe compared to what he's expressing, it would seem unjustified. Isn't that sometimes the way we look at other people's difficulties and suffering? Sometimes it's hard for us to identify when we know what the cause is and we, we want to say, shake it off. Look on the bright side. That's irrational. Snap out of it. Get with it. Come on. We miss the real you. But as it is, it touches us in a way that draws us deeper into his experience because we know those kinds of times. We don't want them in our life. If we've known this kind of dryness and darkness, we never want it again. And we certainly don't want it now. 
Sometimes it comes knocking, especially at moments of great importance, at times that should really count and be so full of meaning that as if each year should get better than the last. The 100 should be all there is. And yet here in this psalm, there's an idling quality. It's like his engine's running, but it seems like he isn't going anywhere. He seems to cycle in circles because the past and the present and the future are all compressed in his composition, kind of in his heart. Psalm 42 is what we call lament. It's kind of a holy complaint. There's formality about the Psalms, especially when they reach parchment, as it were, paper, and when they become the possession of the community of God and actually become the host of worship for the people of God, just as this Psalm is for us today, to identify to experience, not just in its darkness, but also in its light, not just in its despair, but also in its hope. Not just in that sense of isolation, but in the sense of the presence of God. That he's not far, but he's near. And so there is lament in the first five verses, and it ends with the frame, hope in God. Why are you downcast, my soul? I will yet praise him, give thanks to him for the salvations of his face, of his countenance that come with his presence. And then another lament in verses 6 through 11, and again the refrain. Why are you downcast, O my soul? I will yet praise him, thank him for the salvations of his face, the deliverances, the helps, the blessings the good that comes with him. It is the word salvations in the plural. And we experience it as help. We experience it as his blessings, and it is the salvation, it is the deliverance, it is the help, it is the hope of his face, his countenance, his presence, drawn near, not far, but at hand. And then in chapter, or Psalm 43, it's a prayer. A prayer. And it ends again with the refrain. There are three things that I want us to appreciate that I think can help us. I think if we've identified with the darkness, the despair, the drought of his life, we can also identify and be helped by the steps that he takes, the things that he is doing to draw near to God. And the first thing 
that we can see is that he hopes. He hopes in verse 5, 11 and 5. Hope in God. There are four verbs in Hebrew for hope. Four different words that are translated in our English Old Testaments for hope. And all four of those words mean wait. Wait. I don't know of anybody. You know, it really hasn't been that much of a a topic of conversation. But I just assume everybody's like me, and I'm like everybody else, and I don't like to wait. Um, I go and get a Starbucks almost every morning, and I find myself racing to get there early enough so I don't have to wait in that long line to go through the express lane. And I'm hoping that there won't be too many cars. And if there are, I'm hoping that there won't be somebody in a car who's buying for the entire office or these super deluxe drinks because I'm just looking for what every person should get, a straight-up coffee. Or if we have to go to the emergency room. You've wondered, what is purgatory? You know. And even this morning, it dawned on me, taking the exit to Lover's Lane and waiting at that stoplight, how I strive to catch that just right, because that is the longest stoplight in the vicinity. But those, I realize, are just uh, simple casual, tolerable ways of waiting. There are serious and difficult kinds of waiting. There's the longing for a lifelong companion in marriage. There's the childless couple longing to start a family. There's someone longing to find work, a livelihood. And as the weeks grind on, it grinds us down. You may be here this morning and you're waiting for your spouse to become more responsive. There are all kinds of waiting that we do, but we, like Lewis Smead, can sometimes lapse into the experience of the psalmist and we find, as Smead says, that we wait in the darkness for a flame we cannot light. We wait in fear for a happy ending that we cannot write. We wait for a not yet that feels like a not ever. And the obvious question is, why? Why, God, do you not intervene? Why must you allow us, allow me to wait? If you can do anything, if you're all loving, Bring me relief now, not later. Why is it God allows us to wait? We need to know that what God does in us while we wait is as important 
as what we're waiting for. That's the first thing we need to know about waiting. And it can be so valuable to hope that waiting isn't just languishing. Waiting is expectant. And there can become or have added a certain intentionality to our waiting that can spark and inflame energy and a freshness to our soul. In Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 4, Paul says, while we're waiting for God to set everything right, we suffer, but suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character, and character, hope. God is producing these qualities in us while we wait. Waiting is part of the process of becoming what God wants us to be. In fact, it's in the midst of these things that creativity emerges. Even psalms and poetry and songs. I mean, how creative are you when you're bored? What, what comes out of boredom? And how have you relished the conquest, the attainment, the achievement when it was handed to you on a plate, when it cost you nothing, when you had to do nothing to achieve it. God knows. He has a purpose. He's forging us in the crucible, not necessarily of his making, but of the world that he is redeeming that is broken and cancer-ridden and which causes us difficulties and strife. And he's making us anew, even as he's making it anew. A second thing we need to know is that God himself waits. He waits. He's patient and long-suffering. He waits for the right moment. He waits for what's best. Second Peter 3.15, and I could heap other verses, but this says what they all say, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. God is going to turn your waiting and our waiting into rejoicing so we can wait purposefully and expectantly. And as we grow in Christ, as we grow in our faith, as we grow in our trust and hope, we have these experiences where we know that we will see his face, know his presence, know his resolution and redemption. It gives us a peace even in the midst of new challenges and waits where we can trust him all the more. Even as Stephen prayed for us and we prayed with him, we know his faithfulness. The psalmist is in a battle and he goes to war with the weapon of hope, expectancy, and even though it's hard to muster, sometimes we need to appreciate that the battle is with our own thinking. That's He goes to the battle with his own thinking armed with hope. How we recycle our thoughts and discouragements 
when we're disappointed, just as the psalmist does, recycling, cycling those negative thoughts, but he keeps interrupting that cycle with the challenge. Hope. Hope in God. I will yet give him thanks. I will yet praise him for the salvations of his presence. And in doing so, he's calling himself to the second thing I want us to see here, to trust. He hopes, he trusts. He preaches to himself. And how is it that he can preach to himself? He preaches to himself out of hard-won convictions. Convictions that have been forged and safeguarded in his heart. Truths that he holds fast, that he believes at times when the seas beat against his borders. When hardships pound him, he trusts because of these hard-won convictions. There are times that we have to just quit listening to ourselves and speak to ourselves. In the first two laments, that is Psalm 42, the psalmist is all together in a conversation with himself. Only in Psalm 43 does he speak directly to God. And he's listening to himself. But in the refrains of verse 5 and 11, he breaks out of that. And he says, I've I've heard enough. Let me say something to you, O my soul. (laughs) And sometimes we need to do that. Sometimes we're listening to ourselves and we just got to say, wait, just stop. (laughs) Now I've got something to say to you. Hope in God. He goes to battle with the weapons of convictions. I, I think I've mentioned this story. It's, it's really a profound one for me because of such an important occasion in my life. But on our honeymoon, uh, oh, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. That's why we call it honeymoons. But the next morning, I got up early before Shelley And all of my feelings were gone. I felt flat. And I I really felt panicked about this. Initially, all these thoughts just flooded my soul. You've made a mistake. This was all a mistake. And I, I think with the Lord's help, but I caught myself and I thought, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait just a minute. I was in my right mind when I made this decision. I told myself that. I was not insane. I was sane. I I recounted the counsel, all the wise counsel, the prayer, the conversations, everything. And I also recounted my commitment. And that began the turn out of those feelings because it was the truth and the commitment built on that truth 
that outlasted the feelings that eventually subsided through the truth and the commitment. In verse 8, the psalmist recites what he knows to be true of the Lord. In verse 8, he counters what he had uttered to himself in verse 3. God's loyal love will be my song at night, day and night. No longer tears, showing a growing reliance on the things that cannot be shaken. Just as Paul in Philippians 4, 6 through 9, he says, Be anxious for nothing, but with prayers, with thanksgiving, make your supplications and petitions to God. And then he goes on to not only talk about the peace of God, which will guard our hearts, but so powerfully, he then goes on to say, Let your mind dwell on these things, whatever is true whatever is good, whatever is holy, whatever is pure. These are the things of trust when feelings betray us. And the third thing that I want us to see is prayer. And not just prayer as direct communication, direct face-to-face talk to God. Not prayer to God in the third person. You know, as a new believer, when I, I, church was everything. Being around the people of God was so important for me. I never missed a Sunday. Never missed a Bible study. It was just, I, I craved it. I longed for it. I, it was my bread and my water. Especially against the world that I was trying to pull away from. But you know what sticks out among all the wonderful things, again, the one and a hundred, the hundred and one, is how the pastor would pray for the congregation about God in the third person. Like he wasn't here. Like he was carrying on a conversation with us about God rather than expressing our conversation, our hearts to God. That's not the kind of prayer that the psalmist engages in. He engages in direct address. Vindicate me, O God, he opens. Vindicate me. You be the judge in my life. You hold court between me and those who revile me, those who mock me and taunt me, those who I count as my opponents in contest that have upset me so. In verse 9, He says, I will say to God, my rock. That's of Psalm 42, but now listen to Psalm 43. You are my God and my strength. What a difference. Not I will say to the God who is my rock, but you are my strength. You are. He even takes the metaphor of a rock and he applies it in the sense of how God is going to be strong for him. His doubts and whys are now submitted to the Lord with assertions of faith and anticipated action. 
Send your light and truth, verse 3. They will lead me. They will escort me. And here his prayer is now fused with confidence. I'll go to the altar of God, my joy and delight. In fact, it's starting to invade his experience. No longer is he talking just with himself. He's talking to God. He's no longer talking about God. He's talking to God. And it's starting to percolate and permeate his heart, his soul, his very being. Back in 42, verse 4, he talked about God's mountain in nostalgic terms. And now he can almost feel the presence of God in his experience. He feels the joy and praise as he exclaims he's going to enter the presence of God on his holy mountain. Oh God, my God, he exclaims. But here's the thing I want us to appreciate, and that's why that song in which we sing, your presence is heaven to me, is that refrain, salvations of thy face, of your face. Just ponder that. One thing about the psalmist is they long to be on his holy heel because they associate it with his presence. The beauty of his face. Your perfect beauty. Just one day of those pleasures is better than a lifetime spent elsewhere, Psalm 84.3, and on and on it goes. We have so much more Knowing Jesus Christ as we do, knowing God's heart, knowing his countenance, knowing his face. That's the beauty of what the psalmist is talking about. Because when he's talking about the face of the Lord, he's talking about God as a personal friend. You know, in the movies, the suspense is built because the the hero is in these terrible streets, maybe in some dark hole or prison, and it's just beyond hope. And then all of a sudden, he sees the person or she sees the person they never expected to see face to face. Your face is just, it means everything to me. The dawn, I, and with your face means salvation. With your face means everything. That's what I hear the psalmist calling upon, his experience of God's face. And we have more cause than the psalmist to appreciate that God's countenance is always one of love and grace, joy, peace, and favor. I was writing into the office early in the morning and I caught uh, with NPR a, a blurb. Some Swedish athletes were on a grueling 430-mile adventure race in the Amazon rainforest of Ecuador. 
And that caught my ears because I love Ecuador. I've been there a couple of times. And on a meal break, this remember, these are Swedish athletes. This stray dog wandered in, and on a meal break, they gave him, I suppose it was a Swedish meatball. And the dog gobbled it down. I mean, he was just a, you can Google this and see the dog. I mean, mangy looking thing. Well, after the lunch break, they got up and they left. And the dog followed. And for six days, six days, swimming, fighting their way through mud and forest and jungle, kayaking, that dog followed. And they named the dog Arthur. And when they all finished the race, the four Swedish athletes and Arthur, no way could they leave him behind. One of the athletes adopted Arthur. Arthur's found a home in Sweden. (laughs) Will you stand with me? Why would I talk about Arthur? I identified with that mangy dog. It didn't take much to think about what it would mean to that dog to have someone offer him a meatball when he was starving. I know it's kind of a weird analogy, but I feel like Jesus is my my Swedish meatball. And I've followed him ever since. Six days, 430 miles, not always knowing what it would mean. But he never left me. And I ended up in Sweden. Take that thought with you. (laughs) God is so good. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, may we no matter where we are today, have that sense of great conviction. Yet I will praise and thank you for your salvations that come with your smiling countenance. We praise and thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, God bless you.